After reviewing the play, the call on the ice stands. We got a goal! Okay, fellas, we are set to go. Let's go! We are kicking. Watch the blue! Yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah, baby. Number 47 for Boston. Both guys, five minutes each for fighting! Please move it! Please move it! Please move it! Please move it! Mid-September means it's the middle of the Stanley Cup playoffs and another edition of the Scouting the Rest podcast. I keep saying that every week, Josh, that we're at this unusual time in hopes that it will sound more normal. It hasn't yet, but I'm really not that concerned about it now. No, no, it's it's not normal at all. I mean, we went from the, the middle of summer, those hot days with hockey going on. Now it's back to school and hockey's nearing the end of the playoffs. So it's, it's not normal, but I'll, I'll continue to enjoy it, Todd. And I'm kind of missing the afternoon hockey. I mean, we got, we've got one game a night, a, a marquee matchup in both the East and the West, but I really do kind of miss those all-day extravaganzas too. Oh, you know, we were, we were spoiled there. Between the two sites and all those games that had to go in, having, you know, a tournament or Olympic-level scheduling there yes. where you've got game after game after game, it, it, was, it was so amazing. Uh, it was such a great way to welcome hockey back. And, and yes, I, I do miss it because those were some just some wall-to-wall hockey-filled days, and it was a lot of fun. Scouting the Rest podcast is powered by Team Stripes, and this week the hits just keep on coming. We've got a couple of questionable ones, to say the least, that we'll deal with. Some other interesting questions in terms of procedures, protocol, and a rule that really isn't in place that maybe, I think at least, should be. The Scouting the Rest podcast is powered by Team Stripes. It is your source for training tools, apparel, all kinds of officiating equipment, and much more. Check them out online, goteamstripes.com. We welcome your questions via email. Hit us up, heyref at scoutingtherefs.com. And, of course, make sure you're following our social media channels. To follow Josh, it's at scoutingtherefs on Twitter and Instagram. And to follow me, Todd, it's at toddlewissports on Twitter and on Instagram. Should we go back in time a little bit to deal with the first suspension first? Yes, yes. Let's, let's rewind the clock, pull it back to Vegas there, yes, and, uh, it was, and take a peek. It was Ryan Reeves who earned himself a suspension for the hit on Tyler Mott of the Vancouver Canucks. Of course, Vancouver now eliminated. Ryan Reeves has served his one-game suspension. First of all, I have no issue with this suspension at all. And that was the first thing that I was immediately thinking when I saw the hit is when you look at a number of different replays and angles, oh yeah, that is definitely a suspendable offense. Undoubtedly. Seeing that hit in real time, I, I jumped up off the couch and said, oh, you know, this is not going to be good for Reeves here. You, you knew what was coming. And then not only did they call the penalty, and you see Chris Rooney's arm go up right away to indicate the call, which at the time he said was a... Uh, a five-minute major in game misconduct. Mm-hmm. They take a look at the replay there, which, again, nice to see that in this year's playoffs to make sure it's the right call. You know, did we get it right? Are we looking at the right points of contact? Was this a hit that we want to see a guy tossed from the game for? And they confirmed it. Ultimately, since it was a legal check to the head, it, it's a match penalty. But uh, the impact on the ice was no different there. Well called on the ice, well reviewed by the officials using the tools they've got. And then I think... Player safety's suspension was inevitable. One game, two games I, I could have seen. Knowing it was the Western Conference Final, my money was on one game, and, and that's where they landed. Mm-hmm. And now, 
I, I, I'm glad that you noted the bookkeeping part, too, that it is classified as a match penalty because there isn't a major penalty for a check to the head. But even even with the replays, even with the, the decision handed down by the Department of Player Safety, I am absolutely amazed at the different views there were and that I was reading from this kind of hit from from he should be thrown out of the game forever to is that even a penalty? And and I'm really puzzled as to why we have such a wide and varying opinion on this. I have a couple of ideas and maybe one theory. Do you want to weigh in first? Well, I, I you know, I think sometimes people look at intent or they try to look at the act and not the injury. And of course, that's where we should be focused on on the act. I think people looked at it as as he almost missed. He hit him with his back. That shouldn't be a penalty. To me, you're hitting a guy. Your main point of contact is the head. There's no way you're not calling this one, especially in a league that has taken steps to try to get head contact out of the game. So this was pretty cut and dried for me. I don't know if the question arises around, well, he wasn't trying to take out his head, but right. he, he still did. So, uh, you know, to me, uh, this was never an issue that it would have been suspendable and, and certainly worth a penalty. There And there was the one angle in particular where you're looking at the the back of Tyler Mott as the impact is being delivered and you just see the head contact and the head snap around. And that's that's the one that was indicative to me where I think people sometimes get hung up on the phrase principal point of contact. That doesn't necessarily mean the first point of contact. Maybe if we use or apply a slightly different phrase, there was significant head contact or impact. I think maybe that would illustrate it better. It doesn't have to be the first part of the body you hit. That's absolutely correct. I know the league has wrestled with this. That illegal check to the head rule has changed over the years with certain language coming in, certain going out. The language around blindside hits was once in there. That's no longer yep. part of it. So it really is when they say the main point of contact, not the initial point of contact, but the the primary or significant point of contact and I think that's a key as well as whether that contact was avoidable. And it certainly was in this case. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, too, is that it was avoidable. He was tracking Tyler Mott for some time and intended to deliver a significant impact. It was up to the person delivering the hit, in this case, Ryan Reeves, to minimize the head contact, if not avoid it completely. And the other part that I think causes the confusion and again, this is our, our at least my long-held belief that announcers should know the rules better, is that we hear them say, oh, he got part of the body and then hit the head, so I don't know whether or not that's going to be a, a major penalty or not. It, it's not the first point of contact. It is what is the major point of contact. Correct. And, and that's the way it should be, right? Just because you brushed part of him or you, you clipped his shoulder on the way in, but then your shoulder drives into his jaw, that doesn't negate the contact on the player's head. One thing that I thought was interesting, Todd, and I don't know if you heard the player safety explanation video, but they did mention one of Reeves' comments in his defense was that he was expecting the, the defensive pressure to move Mott closer to the boards, and that's where his hit was lined up. That didn't happen, which is why it was a, a near miss and why he only caught the head. And if it had, it would have been the right hit. But like you mentioned earlier, it's, it's on yeah. him to make sure he's lined up for a legal body check on the play. So... He was intending to hit. He was intending to hit through the shoulder. He didn't. But even if he did, you've got to look at where that that primary or that significant contact took place. Right. And in this case, it was the head and that earned Ryan Reeves the one game suspension. Now, in another incident of, hey, here's using your head, 
I think Matt Barzal of the New York Islanders should be rather thankful <laughs> for his head and face protection. He has incurred, what, 30, 40 high sticks and pucks bouncing oh, off him into the head. Oh, my goodness. It was unbelievable the punishment he's been taking. I don't know if I've ever recall anyone having their head in the wrong place at the wrong time more frequently than Matt Barzal in this postseason. I think he should be looking at the back of his helmet maybe for a target that was put on the, <laughs> put on there by mistake. But I, I did see a clip that had me really puzzled in terms of Barzal that during the pregame warm-up, one of his Islander teammates fired a shot. It rattled off the crossbar, hit Barzal directly in the helmet and knocked his helmet off. We see players wearing helmets in various forms during the warm-up. Obviously, Barzal did not have his chin strap fashion. Why are they not required to wear their helmets properly as they are during the game? It's interesting, Todd, and it's a good point. They're required to wear the helmet, but the, the NHL rulebook doesn't specify how they're required to wear their helmet. And, and you know, I think of the, the face shields and watching guys who wear it tipped way up in the sky and, and guys who, you know, try to skirt the spirit of the rule with that. Well, when it comes Leo to helmets, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to helmets, it just says that the players have to wear helmets during the game and when participating in the game. Now, obviously, pregame skate is not necessarily part of the game as defined in the NHL rulebook, but in any case, it doesn't specify that it has to be strapped on. It doesn't specify how tight it should be. I mean, certainly the rule change to penalize a player who continues play without a helmet would, I would think, incentivize guys to put the strap on tighten it a little bit you know try to keep that bucket on your head they're not necessarily required to affix it in a certain way and, and they're not at all in warm-ups other than to wear it so definitely a scary situation and something that i'm relieved at least that he was wearing a helmet at all uh, you don't have to go back too far to remember the days when players weren't wearing helmets in warm-ups and skating around out there and Certainly, this would have had a much different outcome for Barzell had he not been wearing a helmet at all. But you, you go back even to 2016 with Butch Mousseau on the ice, uh, NCAA official who, skating mm -hmm. backwards, hits his head on the ice and unfortunately passes away as a result of the injuries. Now, wow. that prompted the NCAA to require helmets and warm-ups. And obviously, the NHL now requires helmets and warm-ups. But yeah, tightening that thing down might not be required at this time. It should be. But certainly, common sense would dictate that if, if I'm out there, and my career and my health are at risk, I think I'd tighten that strap a little bit. Okay, so just because there's a bit of a gray area, are they required to wear hockey helmets, or they can they wear a helmet of any type during the warm-up? They are required to wear a league-approved helmet. Okay. As, as, I, <laughs> as just, much as I love where you're going with I this just one. thought I would check. You know, we could see guys in football helmets, bike helmets. They could have all kinds of, you know, decorative paraphernalia on there. You know, a little unicorn uh, or uh, or dinosaur uh, feature on the... You could go a lot of different ways with that. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was starting to think this was getting a bit ridiculous. <laughs> but as you were going through, I think I turned the corner on it. And I think we've, we've got a league marketing opportunity here for players to express themselves by modifying their warm-up helmets and and i think they can they can do that and and wear a league approved helmet with whatever they want on it during warm-ups and then you know switch to the more appropriate one for the game so i, I think we might have found an opportunity here todd trademark pending <laughs> This is the Scouting the Refs podcast. It is powered by Team Stripes. Check them out online. GoTeamStripes.com for all of your officiating needs, be it equipment, training, tools, and much more. 
couple of other questions I want to get into before we get into the other big hit inflicted by Alex Kaloran. In the Tampa Bay Lightning-New York Islanders game one, the Lightning, they scored many, many goals in this one. And there was one opportunity where the puck did actually go in the net. It was undetected by the referees at the time. The play continued, and then all of a sudden, the horn goes off. The officials head to the penalty box area for the long-distance phone call. Lo and behold, the puck does cross the line. The Lightning awarded a goal. I just thought it might be good for you to weigh in and clarify how this process works. Do they look at every scramble in front of the net, or or how does this process work? So the NHL's got a room full of guys whose sole job is to watch the game. And to me, dream job, right? Yeah. You're, you're in there, you're watching the game, you're, you've got guys who are logging events and things that have gone on in the game, and guys who are watching for situations that may need to be flagged either for internal review, for potential player safety review, or possible goals. So you've got somebody who's noting plays around the net that that may have gone in or that may justify a second look, as well as zone entries for offside, just in case it comes up for a coach's challenge. So you're, you're noting all of these. And then as the play goes on, you've, you've got somebody else who's taking a look to see overhead, different angles, did the puck cross the line? Now, they're making their analysis there. You've got a manager in the room who's monitoring the game as well and depending on what's going on in the game if they see a stoppage coming up or there's a moment they'll wait for the whistle but in this case didn't have a stoppage in time so somebody's got to sound the horn down there always an exciting <laughs> moment right you, yes did it go in oh, i don't know and then a few minutes later you hear the horn and if you're a fan of that team you're you're excited because they're only stopping the game if the puck crossed the line in most cases so Basically, yeah, they're, they're logging those situations. They're finding them. They're making the call to say definitively, hey, we know the puck crossed the line. We're confident that it did. Sound the horn. Stop play. So that's what happened in this case. The officials go over. They talk to the situation room. They get to see the play so they can see what happened and understand. But the call, the determination, the goal, that's already been determined before they even hit that buzzer. When you're a fan of a team that almost scored and you hear that, you can, you can pretty much celebrate Yes, that makes sense. So somebody is always watching is really what you're what you're telling us. <laughs> we have we've all found that to be true. Always. Yes, okay. Now, this and and you mentioned this is because they are they are looking at offside challenges potentially and other things as well. You've been tracking of course the coaches challenges throughout the postseason and you can go to scoutingtherefs.com to check it out and as as I looked at it it was it struck me as so funny that there had been at the time 22 challenges 11 were upheld and 11 were overturned I think that's about right down the middle isn't it it is I would say it was a bit surprising to see that even split the way it was and of course you know you've got fewer challenges mm-hmm. most of the challenges in the postseason coming from the bench of Elaine Vigneault who is no longer participating but man the Flyers were uh, one for four on challenges so they were issuing yeah. the most there and and sometimes especially in the playoffs with goal scoring down situations sometimes dictate a a different outcome than in the regular season where you're desperate for a goal. It's a critical game and maybe you don't roll the dice on that play for goaltender interference in the regular season, but it's going to put you down three games to one. It's going to put you behind too many goals. You have to give it a shot. It's a desperation move and it's something we've seen fewer and fewer of now that you get a penalty for a failed challenge but something that I think comes up in the postseason where you've got to try something because time's running out. You don't have much more room to work with and the stakes are so much higher. So I think that's why we have a little bit lower success rate in the playoffs. 
Hmm, interesting. And of course, keeping track on scoutingtherefs.com, you'll be able to do that as the playoffs move forward. We do want to now get to the other big hit that occurred in the Tampa New York Islanders series. In, in fact, we can talk about this game just a, l- a little bit too. I, I don't know that this one was the game that they want to look at too frequently and say this is how we want the game officiated i think the temperature got higher in this one than just about everybody would have liked actually i think it favored the new york islanders to have scrums and and to have the play bogged down a little bit but i i just don't think that this was the best example of officiating overall and this is this is not to be critical of the officials uh, because it's it's the players on the ice that dictate how the game goes i just i think there there could have been other choices made at times Sure. I mean, in many games, you have those opportunities and you have that ongoing dialogue between the officials and the players. And this was Kelly Sutherland and Steve Kazari. So two Mm -hmm. veteran guys who who are comfortable with with managing things, with communicating, with letting guys know where they stand on the ice. But I I think you're right, Todd. I think it did play into the Islanders' hands. I think the the game was going in their favor. They lost the game, obviously, but it was Mm -hmm. one where I think things had fallen into place where this it was setting up well, especially coming off how game one went for them. A little chippy at times, uh, the the penalty calls, keeping things tight there. It was working in their favor, but yeah, I, I can I can see where you're coming from. I think the hardest thing is when you've got consistency, which we've talked about in the playoffs. This was the first time Sutherland and Kazari have officiated an Eastern Conference team since March. Exactly what I was going to ask is the there are now the crossover of Western officials officiating Eastern teams and vice versa. And that's going to require a bit of adjustment. Absolutely. You've you've got familiarity with the guys. You've even got that rapport with the coaches and the players. And you you kind of establish that and sharing time in the bubble, whether it's on the ice, away from the ice, in the hotel. These guys are interacting frequently. So you've got guys that you haven't interacted with in half a year that are now coming in and you're working those games. So I think that lack of familiarity there made for, I want to say a change in expectations maybe for what Mm -hmm. the Islanders and the lightning are used to from some of the officials that they've gotten more familiar with as the playoffs progress. So we're in the midst of that changeover right now where we've got the Eastern guys working the Western teams and vice versa. And I think that changes things up a little bit from a consistency standpoint, as guys kind of settled in to understanding how the officials were working and, and the officials understanding how these teams were playing. Managing expectations. I think that's an, an excellent way of, of looking at it. Okay, so let's get to the hit with Alex Killorn on Brock Nelson. Uh, again, the, the two veteran officials, uh, uh, Kazari and Sutherland, got it right in this one. It's five minutes. It's a major. It's a game. He's going to have a hearing with player safety, and he's going to get the same treatment as Ryan Reeves, I imagine. Uh, deservedly so. Scary hit. Again, anytime you see a guy's head bounce off the boards, bounce off the glass like this, first concern goes to the player's health, and then secondary is well, we got to give this guy a penalty and it's all when it comes to boarding based on the degree of violence. So yeah, I can't, I can't challenge the call here. Major penalty, the right call on the play. The, the injury requires a, a game misconduct to go along with that. So good call on the ice. It makes me wonder too, that, and this is an impossible situation that I'm going to speculate on because there's there's the situation of, of Brock Nelson coming back into the game. I'm not sure he should have, but he would have had to clear protocol to get to get back into the game. I'm not sure he should have returned, but you almost want those that are now making the decision on further discipline for Alex Kalorn 
not to know the result of that. If the player returns, sometimes that can be viewed as, oh, well, maybe it wasn't quite as bad a hit as we thought. So the the subsequent injury plays a role, but there's times where I almost wish it didn't play a role and you're just looking strictly at the hit. I think there's a lot of merit to that, Todd. I think number one, and, and player safety's approach is, number one, is it a suspendable act? Is the incident itself worthy of a suspension? And then they look at all the factors to determine suspension length. To me, while injury is important, I, just because a guy was fortunate to not be seriously injured on a play, I don't think should negate what the penalty is for the act that was originally committed. So if you hit a guy in a, and it's, it's two of the same exact type cross-check movements, one hits him in the neck and injures him for the rest of the season, the other one hits him just below in the shoulder and he's back by the third period, it was the same act, it was the same intent, it was the same degree of violence, those should be the same suspensions because, uh, to me, you want to penalize the act, not necessarily the outcome. I agree with you, and it's the the difficult philosophical discussion, I guess, as well, because you're right, a slightly different hit can create a slightly different injury or result of a, a player sometimes stumbles as they are hit and go into the boards versus one who absorbs it a little bit better and one player suffers a much more dramatic injury than the other that and I'm I'm going down the direction of well your suspension should be as long as a player is out and, and injured for well what if a, a player's career is ended what if he misses the rest of the season I mean I, I don't know that that's realistic but I I do understand why injury plays a role it's just trying to find the right balance absolutely when we're talking about injury, and we're talking about Brock Nelson, like you mentioned, he came back to the game, and I was surprised that he came back at all. Mm-hmm. But then seeing the Barkley Goodrow cross-check on yes. the back of his head later on in the game with no call, that was a bit alarming. I was actually waiting to see if player safety was going to address that one. To me, if nothing else, it's a fine to say, hey, <laughs> you can't do that. Uh, we should have called you for it. We didn't call it in the game, and, and this cross-check to the head is deserving of a fine. So, so a little surprising to me that nothing's come out around that because I, I figured that would be as much a slam dunk as the Kalorn suspension. So as we wrap up this edition, it's really the same thing. It's two unbalanced guys trying to find the right balance. That's it. Yes, it's, it's all about balance. <laughs> and, uh, I, I know uh, Daniel LaRusso and Cobra Kai telling me all about balance and uh, hopefully i can find it <laughs> yes at, at, at some point well it, and undoubtedly a week from now when we do this again we'll have more cases to study and again we'll try and find the balance you remember lesson about the balance yeah a lesson not just karate only lesson for all life all life have a balance. Everything be better. The Scouting the Rest podcast is powered by Team Stripes, your source for officiating equipment, training tools, apparel, and more. Check it out. GoTeamStripes.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Scouting the Refs podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Scouting the Refs, Instagram at Scouting the Refs, and visit ScoutingTheRefs.com.